Today's episode is sponsored by the American Chemistry Council. Chemistry creates, America competes. Get out of an Uber on 19th and N, walk into the Palms, say hello to the Michael, the general manager. Welcome to the most DC story ever. Walk over to the bar, order a drink, turn around, see someone you know who's there with somebody else. You know, catch their eye, try to get their attention to say hello. They turn their back and walk to the other end of the bar. And I kind of just giggle. A lobbyist walks into a bar. And 20 minutes later, get a text from them saying, Sorry, man, you know, didn't want those people to know that we were talking. Imagine being the friend no one wants to be seen in public with and liking it. I dig it. Um, you know, it's like, I get it. This is a very, very small, small town and people live a long time. And so you have to be careful with giving that up. And I get a new job as a personal, you know, I try to make it as secretive an experience as possible. And sometimes those things just happen and they're funny. The revolving door between the hill and K Street, or if you're really on the inside, simply downtown, is among the most controversial but everlasting features of Washington's underbelly. I think they just don't want people to know that they're engaged in talking to a headhunter and possibly, you know, thinking about changing jobs. It's something that people try to keep secretive, they try to keep it to themselves as much as they can. And so that's a way of just keeping it there, you know, without saying, hey, you're talking to Ivan. Ivan Adler. So just you have to give me a second. OK, one sec. I went to my first ever metal show last night. I saw <laughs> Slipknot here at Jiffy Lube. So my hearing is slightly off. So I'm just bear with me. Take your time. Okay, we're good. I'm Ryan Lizza. This is Playbook Deep Dive. Look, everyone hates a lobbyist until they need one. You could call Ivan Adler the ultimate DC insider. Yeah, I probably could be accused of that only because of the people that I know, not really because of me. So Ivan's goal is to take DC's most idealistic staffers and turn them into lobbyists. Okay, we're good to go. Political reporter Haley Fuchs covers money and influence in D.C., basically K Street, Ivan's domain. And one day recently, she went on Twitter. So I looked up lobbyists, as I like do every now and again, and like randomly his name popped up the top of my feed. And she discovered Ivan. Because his handle, I believe on Twitter. My screen name is Lobbyist Hunter is at Lobbyist Hunter. So he's kind of hard to miss. But Ivan is not really a lobbyist. He's a headhunter. I am an executive recruiter specializing in placing lobbyists on K Street and beyond. He's never lobbied, but his thing is that he's kind of like very interested and wants to be a part of this world. It's a world that Ivan's been a part of for more than 20 years. He's kind of the doorman for the revolving door between K Street and the government. You have to be a combination of rabbi, psychiatrist, 
bartender, and nurse. All at the same time, sometimes multiple times every single day. And I think that I have picked up the knack to be able to do that. And then obviously you have to be able to quickly gain the trust of somebody else that you may not have ever talked to in your life. And that's, I think, really what it takes. To understand more about this revolving door, Haley meets up with Ivan. He had a black t-shirt on. That's right. White letters. My black lobbyist shirt with the definition of a lobbyist. Lobbyist. Noun. A friend with benefits. (laughs) (laughs) Which I think is hilarious, right? For what I do, especially. So, yeah, I think he is fully aware of kind of the rep that, that lobbyists get. You know, part of why he loves that world is the gossip and uh, kind of the the intrigue of it all and being in the know. And that's obviously a big part of, of his job. I'm a huge proponent of the profession of lobbying and not just because I do it for a living. I, I, I think it falls under the First Amendment of freedom of speech. And I take that pretty seriously. And the, the right to petition your government in whatever form. I I think what people don't realize is, you know, just about no matter what any profession that you're in, there's somebody in Washington representing your interests, whether you realize that or not. You know, I I asked him, can I can I see where you work? Can I see, you know, let me just try and understand like how you operate. And part of that was seeing where he works. And he tells me he works out of his two bedroom apartment. And so, you know, he, he took me on a tour. The setting. It's just like a, a total pigsty. It's filled with Boston sports and 60s musical icons like the Grateful Dead and Bob Dylan and things like that. I think there's a Robert Kennedy for president poster on the board that I, I got someplace that I just really, really like the picture of photos of like Ben Franklin on the wall pictures of my kids there's a very messy desk in the middle of the room I got a Jerry Garcia bobblehead doll on my desk there's two TVs to watch two different sports at the same time in the living room so from this living room Ivan's getting contacts getting names and helping to place government officials who are leaving their posts on the hill for jobs downtown as lobbyists Some agencies are more valuable than other agencies. People that are kind of DAS level and higher up are my strike zone. So if you're a deputy assistant secretary on up, that's in my strike zone. I've been in D.C. for over two decades, and the relationship between lobbying and Capitol Hill has always been controversial. It's also hard to report on accurately because, like Ivan said, it's pretty secretive. Haley knows what I mean. So we have talked a lot about the ways in which Ivan is a real character. Did your reporting about him tell you anything about the relationship between lobbying and Congress? Yeah, I think one thing I thought was interesting was just that members of Congress told me that they had given his name to other members of Congress and that there seems to be this kind of like network of members of Congress who are considering leaving, considering going to K Street, who communicate quietly about this world, and that this is just inherently part of the fabric of of the city and our government and and how it works. And I think it was just interesting to think about the fact that here's this guy who has found his niche at like the most controversial underbelly of 
Washington politics. Yeah. The reason I love the story is I've always wondered how, if you're working on the Hill, you get that sort of connection to downtown after you've either been a congressman or, or an aide. I always assumed you would apply for those jobs, but this person is an actual headhunter for the downtown lobbying world. How does it work? Things are different now with the coronavirus. Ivan told me he says that now he reaches out through LinkedIn. Pre-COVID, you know, I like to hang out downtown. I like to go to the bars that the lobbyists go to to try to be around people. And so you'd meet a lot of people through that or just generally networking events that you get invited to. Christmas time was always a great time to get invited to a bunch of parties where you meet a bunch of people and they're generally imbibing and loosen up a little bit, a little more festive. COVID, a little bit different. He would reach out through just calling a Hill staffer at their direct number. You kind of have to do it the old fashioned way. And he'd say, hey, I'm on the search for this job. Uh, Do you know anybody who's good or would you be interested? And sometimes the person says, no, I'm not interested. And in that case, he'll say, well, give me three names of people who you think would be good at this job. Who do you, you know, think would be good to talk to? And in those cases, he asked them, like, what would it take for you to leave the Hill? So he kind of gets his in in that way. And he keeps tabs on different staffers in the Hill and what opportunities it would take for them to, to leave. Sometimes when he calls a, a Hill staffer, they are interested and they'll say, hey, like, I can't talk now. Let's talk tonight. Here's my cell phone. He told me that oftentimes he'll see someone out in public who he's working with and they won't really want to to talk to him in public because they don't want to let on that they're working with him. So some of his work is kind of done in in secret. So when he cold calls someone, what are the tells for him that he might have someone that wants to leave the Hill and enter the the more lucrative world of D.C. lobbying? Yeah, so I heard some of these stories from both him and his associate who worked with him for, for many years. But sometimes they'll call them and how you know someone is interested, how you know a Hill staffer is interested is if they say, hey, like, give me a second to close my door. Give me a second to go outside to talk to you. Or what's your cell phone? Let me call you back at night. You kind of know the first kind of sign that a Hill staffer is potentially interested in leaving uh, and going to somewhere like a lobbying firm is that like they say, hey, like, let's talk when I'm out of the earshot of, of all my <laughs> colleagues. So Nancy Pelosi recently announced that senior house aides could now earn much higher salaries, even more than members of Congress. The idea behind this was to prevent people like Ivan from poaching the most talented people on the Hill. How's that working so far? Is there any, is it too early to know? One thing that Ivan did tell me is that the salary is part of it, but it's not everything. And part of it is the hours and the the lifestyle of, of working on the Hill. And so, yes, they're raising this upper limit. But one criticism I've heard too is that it doesn't mean that like everyone's going to be paid more. People will still kind of have low salaries that are incomparable to what they could get on on K Street. And so I've heard many criticisms that uh, the salary increase is not necessarily going to like solve perfectly the the brain drain problem that the Hill is experiencing. So there's a, a sort of maze of rules that are supposed to regulate when you're allowed to lobby, 
whether it's coming off of uh, the Hill or coming out of a, a presidential administration. What's the current state of those rules? And do they make Ivan's life any harder or are they just very, very easy to get around? The cooling off period for members of Congress is is one year. There have been calls to extend that to two or three years to try and prevent the kind of revolving door that, that we've talked about. But at the beginning of each administration in, in recent history, the president has signed a, an ethics pledge and asked his appointees to, to do the same. And in the Trump administration, in the Clinton administration, they you know, walked back on that pledge and, and rescinded it in the final moments of their, their presidency. But the Biden administration's pledge shares some similarities to those of presidents that came before him. For one, his appointees can't accept gifts from lobbyists or engage in matters related to former employers or clients for two years after appointment. They also can't lobby the executive branch until the end of his administration or two years after they have left, whichever one is later. Let's talk a little bit more about Ivan. So after you found him online and called him and told him you wanted to write this piece, was he enthusiastic about cooperating? Did he see this as, oh no, he's going to be outed and this is going to make his life difficult, but he did it anyway? Or was he thinking, this is great, this is going to boost my business? I think Ivan is anything but apologetic for what he does. He's very proud of what he does, he's, he's told me. So he definitely was very ready to cooperate and very ready to talk about the underbelly of, of his job. And when I asked him, like, what do you think about the title, you know, doorman for the revolving door? He responded, guilty as charged. <laughs> He's very self-aware. As a headhunter of lobbyists, how does he make money doing this? Yeah. So he tells me that his like usual fee that he charges for connecting a firm with a candidate is 25% of the candidate's annual salary, which is a fair amount of money. That is crazy. <laughs> 25%? Lobbyists make a lot of money, I'm told. It's like, so what are we talking here? So you can, you can make seven figures signing as a lobbyist for one of these firms. And in those cases, Adler brings in hundreds of thousands of dollars on, on those deals. So if he plucks a senator who just lost re-election or retired and decides to retire to a, a lobbying firm, if, if he plucks them as a headhunter, gets them set up at a million dollar a year starting salary, he's making $250,000 off of that deal. Yeah. That's incredible. I mean, that sounds like it's better than lobbying. Yeah. No, he, he definitely does well for himself. <laughs> A lot of lobbyists are very aware of how the industry is seen. What's sort of his go-to justification about why lobbying isn't as bad as a lot of people think it is? You know, I think he says it's protected under the First Amendment. It's part of freedom of speech. So people have the right to, you know, lobbying is, is part of that. And he tells me, you know, it's the First Amendment for a reason. The right to petition the government. He's just one of the people facilitating that. Right, right. I feel like one of the things that's hard for people to understand and that is one of those kind of, it wasn't always this way. Uh, and often when we say it wasn't always this way, we're usually wrong and it like always was this way. But I generally think it, it wasn't always this way that becoming a member of Congress, an elected official in Washington and coming to Washington 
there was a time where it was unthinkable that you did that as a stepping stone to becoming a well-paid lobbyist. And now, and in the last 10 or 15, maybe 20 years, I think that a lot of people who are political addicts and maybe start as a staffer on the Hill and then go back home and try and get a political career off the ground, that it's not uncommon for them to think, you know what, being a a representative in the House is really just a sort of way station on the way to your real career as an influence peddler. And that this is now so part of the infrastructure of Washington that you need people like Ivan to sort of connect the downtown world and Congress. I guess what I'm getting at is like, is this a job that couldn't have existed in a previous era, but because the relationship between Congress and the influence peddling world is so much more developed and sophisticated that headhunters are a necessary part of that DC experience now? I think one thing I I was told throughout the reporting of the story was that there was a time in which Hill staffers would spend their whole career and retire on the Hill, and that as the salary hasn't kept pace with the cost of living, that things have changed. Ivan Adler, in some ways, does fill a real niche. K Street needs well-connected Hill staffers to do their job and to get clients, and he's he's found his place there. What are the type of outside firms that would hire him for his services? I'm thinking like there are always new industries that aren't adept at Washington lobbying and they suddenly realize that, wow, you know, government regulation is coming for them. So they have to get in that game. Famously, the the tech industry for many years didn't have a huge Washington presence and over the last couple of decades that's obviously changed yeah ivan adler works with democrats he works for the republicans he's relatively non-discriminatory in like who he chooses to work with and among those he helps associations or corporations find their lobbyists and among those is jewel labs which is the e-cigarette company and with them i asked him you know what do you make of working for a company that's been accused of of marketing towards children and his response is I believe that everyone should have a right to have a lobbyist and make their case before Congress. He doesn't really seem to discriminate when it comes to what a company is is facing. What is the next term on Twitter that you're going to search for? I don't know, but the, honestly, that that's it's, it's turned out some stuff for me. So you know, it's it, it does. I think it's it works. genius. I'm literally <laughs> after we hang up, I'm going on Twitter and <laughs> I'm determined to find my next story. I think that is so cool that that's how you found this guy. Well, because sometimes I'm like random hill staffer will tweet out like I heard ex lobbyist did something or like I don't know like it's just interesting. I feel like public perception of lobbyists is so like integral and in, like how you cover it and try and understand it. And so I feel like, I don't know, I like to see just what like lay people on Twitter are writing about on, on my beat. Well, and I think the point that he raises and other lobbyists always raise and lobbyists love to talk about the First Amendment because right there in the First Amendment, it's about the right to petition the government. So just as uh-huh. we love to talk about the First Amendment and free speech, uh-huh. <laughs> lobbyists have a similar claim. 
Uh-huh. And there's always this tension in that industry between good lobbyists and bad lobbyists, I guess. Like I remember once when Hillary Clinton was running for president, she tried to make this way too nuanced point about not all lobbyists are bad. You know, if you're lobbying for the tobacco industry, maybe uh, not such a great cause. If you're lobbying for family and medical leave or, you know, there are plenty of policy issues that one could consider quite virtuous to lobby for. And a lot of those issues, there are groups that hire influential lobbyists. And I remember she, she was trying to make that point at a liberal blogger convention and got like booed. You know? Question here, which is, will you continue to take money from lobbyists? Yes, will you I take will. His position? I will. Thank because, you. you know, a lot of those lobbyists, whether you like I it or not, represent real Americans. They actually do. They rep- and this was during the, the Democratic primaries and the Obama campaign sort of pounced on that and, you know, criticized her for defending lobbyists. When you mentioned that, I was like, why don't I remember that? And then you said 2008 and I was like, oh, because I was 10. So yeah, it was it was the 08 it was the 08 campaign. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but I guess and you know, you don't have to I don't want you to editorialize, but I guess Ivan does have a point in terms of not all lobbyists are evil. You know, as someone who covers this now, do you find that there's like a lack of nuance in understanding this world on the part of the public and the way that politicians demagogue lobbying? It's not my job to make a moral judgment on anything. But I think that the reality is that as long as Congress continues to make laws, the people who those laws affect will continue to fight for them or against them. And that the lobbying ecosystem is just a product of the fact that people want to advocate for their own causes. And so I think that especially in the Democratic 2020 primary, you know, lobbyists were persona non grata, many candidates weren't accepting donations from federal lobbyists, federally registered lobbyists. But the reality is that these people are just part of the system. It's kind of just how it works and how corporations kind of use their voice. Haley, just to play devil's advocate, what's the problem with lobbying? Why is it such a bad thing? Why is it a bad thing if it is for experts, former members of Congress, to go use their expertise in helping others, you know, solve their legislative issues and petition the government. Yeah, I think in recent years, lobbyists have become a key talking point for the progressive left because they see lobbyists as trying to, you know, in the campaign finance world, trying to use money to leverage influence for their clients. And in terms of the revolving door, People criticize members of Congress who leave and then become lobbyists as trying to cash in on their public service, try and cash in on a a job that they had that was taxpayer funded. One thing that was brought up to me was that when a Hill staffer leaves the Hill, they keep their, their social connections. They still talk to their former colleagues. They still have those relationships. And there is some concern that then that person could leverage those relationships to help corporations and others who are paying them to to represent them. So just by nature of how Washington works and how small it is, uh, I think a lot of people fear that lobbyists are trying to take advantage of the system. And, you know, their job is to influence our government and to influence the process. And someone like Ivan, because he's a headhunter, there's no regulation of that part of the lobbying world, right? Like he's not registered as a lobbyist. He doesn't actually lobby. Are there any rules or regulations that 
his job falls under, or is this something that sort of falls within the cracks of the lobbying regulations and laws? Members of Congress who are leaving and like interviewing with firms and interviewing places, I think they have disclosure, ethics disclosure rules, but when it comes to Ivan himself, like he's not a lobbyist, he doesn't have to register. He's just kind of slipping in through through the cracks in the system. Haley, thank you so much for talking. Thanks so much for having me. You know, through Ivan Adler's eyes, DC is organized in a very particular way. And it helps that he really loves this city. So there's two branches of government that really matter to me, the executive and legislative, not to get all, you know, bring out my GW poli-sci degree, but there's kind of the president of the United States, who's the king, and everybody that works for the king underneath that in various levels all the way down. And then there's the legislative branch, where you start out with the speaker and all the way down and the people that do that. And the people that are on the working for the money committees, Ways and Means, Senate Commerce. And then you get down to kind of personal offices. And then you get down to kind of House of Representative personal offices and the people there. Then there's everybody else in Washington. You know, the lawyers, the lobbyists, the consultants, the PR people that add to the process and are part of the boolea base of what makes this town so cool, at least for me. And I like all the mix of the different personalities. You know, everybody has their own, here's how to save reconciliation or whatever it might be. And to me, it's just fascinating what people think about the different parts and pieces that make Washington tick. I really like it. And that's our show. Our producers are Adrian Hurst and Annie Reese. Our senior producer is Jenny Ament. And our executive producer is Irene Noguchi. Mike Zappler is Playbook's daily newsletter editor. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. If you like what you hear, subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you listen. And before you go, I want to tell you about Global Insider a podcast from Politico, where each episode brings you intimate conversations with world leaders. This week, host Ryan Heath talks to Europe's top tech cop, and next week, to Taiwan's digital minister. That's Global Insider. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.